You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin, found on Twitter at Jason LK. Now, if you'd like to join me, Jason, along with Facebook's Dustin Moskovitz, YC's Sam Altman, and HubSpot's Darmesh Shah at Sasta Annual in February, then all you have to do is purchase your tickets, and when you do, enter the promo code Drinks with Harry, those three words, Drinks with Harry, and you'll not only get a whopping 20% off the ticket price, but also an invite to the hottest party. San Francisco scene in years. It is, of course, the first of many mojito parties with me and Jason. And you always hear me say how incredible Sasta is, but I wanted to take you inside Sasta Annual today to show you the incredible content that you could experience firsthand if you come to the conference this year. Which brings me to the show today, which is an excerpt from a presentation at Sasta Annual 2016, presented by Leo Widrich. Now, Leo is the founder and COO at Buffer, the simple and powerful social media scheduling, publishing, and analytics tool. They have raised funds from some of the best, including Scott and Cyan Bannister, HubSpot's Darmesh Shah, Heaton Shah, and Eric Reese, just to name a few. Now, in today's talk with Leo, he breaks down his and the Buffer team's top 10 learnings in growing to 10 million in ARR. However, before we meet the main man that is Leo, if you attend Sasta, you'll also get the chance to meet and see the incredible Algolia product and team at the event. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash Sasta podcast. However, enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Leo Widerich, founder and COO at Buffer. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. So awesome to be here. I remember the last few years that I was following along with Sasta. There were so many great talks. I watched them on YouTube. I was talking with Jason about it. And I was always like, oh, I really want to attend. And the fact that I can come and actually give a talk is a, is a really honor, a real honor. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, for context, BJ already had, gave some great info. Uh, who, who in the room knows about Buffer? Quick show of hands. Who, who, who's a user of Buffer? Person in the back was slightly unsure. Maybe, maybe they will churn soon. We can talk later a little bit more about that. Yeah. As a company, we build social media management, uh, a social media management tool. We help you schedule. We help you organize your all your social accounts, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We help you schedule posts. We help you collaborate as a team. That's sort of what we do um, from the product side of things. As a company, as, as um, BJ mentioned, we are about 75, 80 people. I'm keeping losing track of things. We've been going for about five years now, so we've been around for a little while. We are a company completely remote, as BJ mentioned, across five different continents, over 40 different cities, and we just hit uh, 50,000 paying customers a few days ago, which I'm really excited about. From a, from a, from a numbers perspective, when, when Jason and I, we brainstormed on this talk, we said, like, okay, let's do uh, top 10 learnings going to 10 million, and said, like, oh, we're not quite at 10, so we're, we're at about 8.9, or so almost 9, so we're, we're estimating that we'll get to 10 by March, so it's, that's why I kind of tried to change the title slightly and go to, um, go to, go to almost. For, for today's talk, 
talk, yeah, when I give you 10 lessons, I want to help with some more tactical things. There's some really great high-level stuff going on. And what, I, what my goal really is across marketing, product, general business practices, I would just want to like, really try and dive in so that hopefully most of you in the room will be able to pick one or two of those things up and tomorrow I'll try and implement some of those things and see if that helps you sort of build a better company. So let's dive in. 10 things. This is the first lesson that I want to share, which is my co-founder, Joel, uh, introduced me to an idea of a weekly mastermind with myself. And what I find interesting is, as in when we work on our startup, is that oftentimes we work on the startup. And we really work on the relationship between our co-founders or between our early team members enough. And so it was really useful for me that Joel helped me introduced me to this concept and we've been doing this for the last five years once a week and it's totally transformed my relationship uh, with my co-founder so this idea of actually working on the relationship with your co-founder with your other team members as well as on the company I think is, is quite counterintuitive especially early on and you know I, I see a lot of startups founders that come to me it's like we know each other so well you know I work with this guy I work with this girl all, all day we, we know everything about each other and I think that's a trap a really easy trap to fall into that, that we've fallen into where if you don't zoom out a lot of things can sort of build up and this is how this works this is what Joel and I do so the first thing is we try and take about one or two hours where we try and find a, a time that's slightly less busy so you know on a Friday evening or on like an off day on like a Sunday we try and get together in a coffee shop in a really casual setting and then we take 10 minutes and we talk about each other's achievements and what I love about this point is that oftentimes especially early on when we're building our businesses, we don't take enough time to reflect on the things that we have accomplished. We always think about what else we want to do, what else we can get to. And I think this can be really powerful to avoid sort of burning out, you know, and actually say, hey, I know everything is falling apart. At the same time, here are some things that I'm actually proud of that are actually going well. And I think that achievement section has helped my personal happiness a, a lot throughout the years. Then we move on to challenges. We talk about each other's challenges. We talk about personal challenges. We talk about business challenges. This is really a session to get really deep into, into some topics. The one tip here, if you experiment with that, is to sort of avoid solving each other's problems. And instead, really practice listening and the Socratic method, which is sort of to ask more questions and to really let that person come up with their own solutions instead of you trying to say, like, oh, yeah, you should do this. And lastly, um, we have this a section about feedback for each other. Again, when you in, in the day-to-day, -day, when you're so zoomed in, when you stop actually sometimes um, zooming out and talking about some of the things that bothered you, and I think it can be really useful to have that. Point number two, something really powerful, and, and, and there's a lot of sessions today around data, how to use data, and just in general, I think there's so much that we learn on a day-to-day -day basis, how to use data. I think, it, I actually believe that it can be such a huge distraction early on when you're building your company where you get too focused, too narrowed in, in, in trying to look at charts or look at numbers when it can actually be much more useful to focus on the more qualitative stuff instead. And I have this quote from Heaton. He, he talks about the importance of actually using more qualitative data and not relying on quantitative data. And what I love about this quote is actually that Heaton said it because Heaton is a guy who sells you analytic software. So if a guy who sells you analytic software tells you to 
not use you know analytics and data that much early on. That's kind of I find that kind of double encouraging. And so if you if you can sort of try and take a step back, especially early on when you don't have what what Heaton talks about here, thousands or hundreds of new customers every month, to really focus on more of the qualitative insights, then I think that's that's, that's a big recommendation that I want to make. And that's actually my next point of like how you can do that better. So this is about learning to talk with customers. And what I find oftentimes when I talk with with some founders and early stage companies, we have a lot of core functions in the business, right? We all know about marketing, we know about product, we know about sales, and we know about customer service. So we know that's when we talk with customers. And what's interesting is that whenever we do have those things, none of those four things usually touches on simply sitting down and talking with a customer about their problems. And that's what I think customer development, even though there's so much written about it, I think it's still not quite incorporated enough. And I hope these five questions can be potentially useful to, to people to try out. They come from a book called Lean Customer Development by uh, Cindy Alvarez. And I can highly recommend getting this book and, and trying to, because there's way more in that book beyond those five questions, which are also from the book, that just really teach you on a fundamental basis how you should talk with customers. And I think it's, it's we oftentimes, again, have this assumption. I, it was certainly true for myself. It's like, I know how to talk with customers, when really there's so much to be, to be learned and improved. And these are the five questions. There is one thing when you read through those that I think is really interesting, where you won't find any sort of what in customer development we call leading questions, right? You won't find any questions here that are, would you buy this if, or would you use this, right? Sort of these questions that bias the person are ready to say yes, which we really want to avoid. And the one particular one that I want to highlight here is, is the magic wand question. It's one of my favorite questions. And what I found is that everyone sort of loves to be a magician every so often and to really try and think about, you know, what is even possible with this product? And it can feel slightly embarrassing if you feel like, oh, but I don't want to like, you know, it's a professional setting. I don't want to give like, would you use a magic wand? What would you do? But I found this really, really powerful to actually induce sort of creativity from the customers you're talking to. And I want to make one more final point on the data. So like avoid being sort of distracted by data early on, trying to use these questions. But then also sort of as your company grows, as you hit that point that Heaton talked about, when you actually get to the hundreds or thousands of customers every month, one thing we've learned at data about data at Buffer is to try and keep the data in-house. And, and this is sort of Buffer's quick journey with data. So from 2010 to 2011, everything was in-house, and Joel built those tools early on. And 2012, we sort of experimented with various third-party tools, Kissmetrics, Mixfellow. Then we moved back to building our own tools. Now we transitioned last year again to another tool called Looker. I think they even have a booth out there. And throughout this roller coaster ride of using different data tools and really trying to learn how to best make use of our data, the one lesson that we've learned, frankly, in a very hard way, is that you always want to keep some, like at least one copy of your data in-house. And there is a lot of people in a company that sometimes will walk up to you and say, you shouldn't do that, right? There will be some engineers that come to you and say, like, well, we're already sending that data to this tool. We don't need to store that. Or, you know, we don't want to, you know, hog our servers with this data because we want to have, you know, real-time data here. But in our case, that really can sort of, it really was biting us in the ass at the point where we were, like, not able to have a certain, make certain decisions anymore because we didn't have all the data in-house. Because no tool that you ever use out there ever is going to be a analytics or software tool for your particular business, right? We're all here in this room because we're trying to grow our companies and make it scale and make it fit 
you know, multiple use cases, right? Whereas your company is there's only one like it. And, and so therefore, I just want to give you this one lesson from us that we learned, you know, keeping that always in-house, even if you have people saying like, it's a waste of time or a waste of effort or a waste of server costs. Um, it's, it's, it's so useful to at some point come back to that. This next one is a really interesting one about marketing. And I think it's quite counterintuitive. I had a discussion early on with some people about this from my, from my friends at, at Feedly right in the front row there. And, and we talked about this from the perspective. If you go and do marketing, should you pick one channel and, and, and if so, how and why and, and how do you get there? And I, I see a lot of this idea around like spray and pray, right? You're an early startup. You're like, let me go and just see what sticks. Let me try every marketing strategy in the world and see what works out for us and then I'll keep some of them around. And I think that can be less than ideal in many cases. And, and, and a buffer, one of the things we've done early on, we picked a single strategy only and that was content marketing. Nothing else, no paid, no SEO, no nothing. We just did content, content every day for at least for the first year. And then over time, of course, you branch out. But looking back, that was one of the, you know, in hindsight, very, very good decisions that we made because it kept us so focused and so on track. And there's this exercise called the bullseye exercise by, it comes from a book by Gabriel Weinberg called Traction. I can highly recommend that book, by the way, again. It's, it's super, super useful. And Gabriel talks about these three steps to finding your one channel. So the first one he talks about is sort of the, 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 the outer ring of the bullseye, where you talk about he identified 19 different channels and he, you try and not try and go after all those 19, but just you want to write them down and at least brainstorm on them. And then he says like, okay, pick three or four that you think are most promising from either from early data that you already have and try and run some cheap tests, right? So for about three to four weeks, run some tests, see what works. And then he says, okay, and then finally pick one and really be disciplined with yourself and not say, well, you're kind of getting a little help from SEO and a little bit from paid. So we're going to do both a little bit. He says, like, be really disciplined with yourself and pick one. And there's three reasons why I think it's so important to be disciplined with that. And the first one is sort of what we call the marketing flywheel. It's this idea that when you start working with just one channel, you create this early repeatability, which really helps you to create this momentum and build like sliver after sliver that then eventually turns into the curve that we all want. And the second idea here is with early repeatability, what you, what you really want is become good at marketing, right? And so if you pick two or even three different channels and you don't have, you, don't, you just don't build up the expertise early on, you spread yourself too thin. Whereas a buffer, for example, we have so much to learn with content, there's so much further for us to go, but we feel so much more comfortable because we've just doubled down on it so much. And so we feel our expertise there is so much stronger. And then the, sort of the other idea of the marketing flywheel is that you can actually step away. Like right now at Buffer, we could step away and stop doing content for a while and we would still reap those benefits that are sort of going on even even if you don't keep doing it. This next one is is a really, really difficult one for me personally. That's, that's almost like advice for myself. Um, I don't know if everyone um, kind of feels that way, but here's how I operate. I'm, I'm sort of, I listen to someone that I'm inspired by and I'm hooked. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do exactly what this, this guy is successful. This guy has done this before. I'm going to go exactly after what this guy has just told me. And I think one of the lessons I've learned is that that can be really counterproductive to building an actual, real, authentic business where you, you're sort of creating your own path along the way. And so one lesson I've learned is that now every time there's a big decision, you know, should you raise funding? How much should you raise? Should you hire that person in that VP of sales? Is it too late? Is it too early? Whenever you have those big conversations, try and get two 
opposing opinions that you really respect. And in the past, I would like talk with someone and be so hooked. And now my immediate goal is, after I've had one of those conversations, is to immediately go and talk with someone who I know will disagree with that. And that sort of leaves me with the, the idea that now I've heard two exact opposing opinions from people that I respect, and I'm forced to make up my own mind. And I think that's such a powerful position to be in, to really keep you empowered as a founder, not to just copy and paste. And we all know that like the persuasiveness that you know authorities have. You know, if you're in a room with Elon Musk, like of course you're gonna do whatever he tells you to do. But if you get a chance to then talk with Jeff Bezos the next day and he tells you something completely different, you'll be much more easily able to to come up with your own solution. This is another one that's sort of a lesson for Buffer. It's like that we want to do better ourselves, which is to to really be much more adventurous when it comes to changing our pricing. And I feel that oftentimes we're so zoomed in, we're building great features for our product, we sort of neglect how much more value you're building and that value can actually tr be translated uh, into, into a higher price point. I think it's one of the most neglected but most powerful changes you can make at your company. And another th problem that I've, I've seen with making pricing changes is that we have a huge barrier in our heads. We feel like there will be huge backlash from all our customers or if we change our pricing no one will start you know, wanting to, to pay us anymore. And so we have all these things in our heads that make us like, okay, let's not touch this pricing page anywhere near enough um, as, as, as much as we should. And I wanna give you just some real data of some of the things we've done at Buffer. We've done like many pricing changes. Again, we actually haven't changed our pricing again for a while now. So we actually wanna, we're in the middle right now of experimenting with that again. But we went from like this $5 and $20 and free to free and 10 and the business plan and the enterprise plan now. And when we switched from the $5 to the $10, we had a zero change in conversion rate. So we literally doubled our revenue from one day to the next with, without losing a single customer. And that's just so fascinating for me to be like, all these days when we were like worrying that no one will start paying us anymore, but we were building all this value you know, to, to add to our product, and, you know, that was just really eye-opening for me. So like really working with your own, our own biases health has helped us a lot. This is a very strange phenomenon I see going on at startups, and I feel like I'm bringing up Heaton a lot, but uh, he's a big mentor and, and, and advisor and, and, and investor in Buffer and had some great conversations. And Heaton actually, I think he even called this sort of I don't know what he said, like it's a, like a law or something. And the law, let's call it Heaton's Law. And uh, it goes something like, startups use the lean startup methodology once and then never again. And that was certainly true for us at Buffer. And I, I honestly, I don't know why. Like, you know, sometimes we feel like, okay, you know, at Buffer, we feel like we've been disciplined at starting and launching our product with the lean startup, like, you know, creating a hypothesis and, you know, not building, but actually talking. And then after a while, we are like, you know, we're getting some traction. Maybe that's when we get some traction that we're like, oh, now we know what to build. Now we can just go and build features and we know what's next and it's kind of obvious and we sort of stop being disciplined and a buffer that created a lot of waste. So we had a period of time of almost a year where we just ended up building features with, even though first, in the, in the very first um, uh, iteration, we were very disciplined, where we stopped using the Lean Startup methodology. And this was really what helped us get our startup mojo back, is what I like to say, which is when we built a new product line, it's called Buffer for Business. We started to be able to really be very disciplined again. And what you're seeing on screen here 
is the actual pricing page of the first version. This is, a, this is a literally a Wufu form, which was the first sort of pricing page. So people would select which plan, they would put their email in, submit the form, and we'd reach out to them. So this was like super, super lean at this, at this stage. And we really went back to interviewing customers, building MVPs, and, and doing all the things we all know in this room, or many of you will know about the lean startup, and really being disciplined about it. And Buffers for Business is now doing 45% um, of Buffers total revenue. And so this has been really successful for us to, to take that approach here. This is what we started to do. Um, we really started to create a process around it. We said, like, no more. We don't want to like, keep falling into this trap of building things. Let's really institutionalize this. How are we going to do it? And for context, we talked about customer development earlier. We have four people full-time at Buffer now who do nothing but customer development. So all day, every day, they talk with customers. They don't try to sell them anything. They don't try to do customer service. They don't try to market. All they're trying to do is to understand people's problems. And I think this methodology has really helped us. We want to have a hypothesis for every feature that you're building, something that by definition, therefore, can be invalidated. So after you go into a customer development phase, it can happen that you, know, you stop building this feature because you realize your hypotheses were wrong. And the next step for us, again, in this new process of being diligent and more disciplined is sort of a, we, we love Envision to create sort of clickable prototypes. So it's a great product where many of you probably heard about it for, for design. And it helps us to get feedback again. At this, we are at the third stage of building a new feature or a new product, and we still haven't written a line of code. And then the fourth version is sort of roll out a version that you're slightly embarrassed by of the first feature. And I think this line, I think this famous quote from Reid Hoffman around, you should be embarrassed by your first version, I think that also gets misinterpreted a lot because it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be embarrassed by it from, you know, it shouldn't, if it completely breaks and, you know, it's completely unusable, that's the wrong type of embarrassment you want. I think the type of embarrassment that's good is the embarrassment of, of richness, right? You, you're kind of embarrassed because it's only this one feature and you wish you had done three more. But that's really the type of embarrassment you want, you want where it's complete in itself. We often talk about like it, it should be like not the base layer of a cake, but it should be a cupcake. It should be, and a cupcake in itself is complete. And I think that's really what you want when you're slightly embarrassed with the version that you then roll out. Number nine, this is uh, really interesting for me personally. I feel like that almost gets me to like a spiritual level whenever we did get offers to sell Buffer. So throughout the five years of Buffer's journey, we had four offers, serious offers, to sell the company. And every stage was really, really difficult for us to really figure out whether this was the right thing for us or not. And oftentimes when we talk about you know, selling our companies, we think about how much money would I make now versus how much money would I make if I keep going and I don't sell right now. And one thing that's really helped us at Buffer is we did a list that talks about what are the experiences we would be missing out on if we were to sell now. And sort of that change of like focusing on personal growth and, and like a sort of Einstein's idea of becoming a person of value, I think is, is, is really what helped us you know, navigate those decisions better if some of you are, are in, in those, uh, you know, experiencing some of those moments. And these are actual things that we listed when we got offers to sell. And we listed what we wouldn't learn. We wrote down, we wouldn't learn how to scale to tens of thousands of customers how to let someone go, how to acquire another company we've now, which we've now done a few months ago. We wouldn't learn how to recover from a hack. The, the reason I think all those things are interesting is that you know, we want to be 
people that are able to offer some of those experiences to other people when they come and, and you call us. I want to be the guy like, let me call Leo. He's been through a hack. He knows how to let someone go. He's been through this. And like, that's really the type of, for me, the aspiration of like, who do I want to be from a personal growth perspective that goes beyond sort of like, okay, how much money do I have in my pocket? Even though like, you know, financial reward is still very, something that I'm interested in, but at the same time, this sort of helped me um, frame the question a little bit better. This quote from Dharmesh, um, one of our awesome uh, advisors and investors as well, is something that helped me with that. So stop thinking about making a million dollars, start thinking about serving a million people. I, kind of the same idea, same framework, and uh, it's been really, really powerful for us. Cool. And the 10th th lesson I actually left open, because we're not quite at 10 million, so I thought like, it would be kind of unfair <laughs> to have 10 lessons. Um, but what I do want to do is so if you go to open.buffer.com, you can drop in your email, and as soon as we hit 10 million, I'm going to have a 10th lesson for you. It's just going to be slightly delayed, so I'm scheduling that one out into the future. Um, we have some experience with that. Yeah, that's, that's really it. Thanks so much. Um, if we do a lot of things, like uh, BJ mentioned, are very transparent, so if you go to buffer.com slash transparency, that's how a lot of people learn from us, which I'm really, really grateful for. If that's useful for you, we have oh, transparent revenue, transparent pricing, transparent equity, transparent salaries, everything on there. Um, if you want to talk with me more one-on-one, um, it's leo at buffer.com or uh, hit me up on Twitter, Instagram at leowit. But uh, thanks so much, everyone. This was really fun. Time for some questions. Hi, I'm Pratik and I'm from India. I've come here to like learn more about SaaS as like Indian companies are also building a lot of products now. One question I had regarding companies like Buffer that start off like a, solving a very specific need for like a, you could say like a niche segment, mm. is like uh, when you look at com companies normally, like consumer companies or otherwise, you think about entry barriers, you think about like switching costs and a lot of those things, which are not very clear in like pure play SaaS products because a lot of people can hypothetically build something very similar. So how do you think about growing this? Is this something on your mind? Uh, like what do you think about to mitigate such risks? And do you even like think that's a like big risk? Yeah, I guess you also it comes into like competition and you know the other companies. It's it's really interesting. I, I can never know whether because we are so oblivious to competition at Buffer, whether we are ignorant or whether we are arrogant or whether we are naive or like some combination of some of those three things. But truthfully, it's never on my mind. Like I never think about it. Like there's other great players in our space um, that we really respect. And like for us, you know, we have such a focus on we want to focus on our customers. We want to build features that are great for them. We want to do great marketing to reach new people. I'm so focused on like just providing value to people that, you know, it's it's a huge distraction for us to think of like, oh, what if they don't like this? Or like if you, you can fix all those problems by actually focusing on your own customers. So it's, it, I know it's a kind of a non-answer, but that it's kind of like I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it takes some practice, you know, we all like, oh, they're building this or like our competitors are going to eat us. Like, I, you know, I think like Working through that, you know, it can actually be more useful than trying to do something that's not focused on your own customers. You guys are so strong in content marketing, too, that it probably helps keep away the competition a bit. <laughs> so uh, maybe I have time for one more. Hi, right, thank you. Uh, I'm very interested to know, like, uh, I think you guys had already did two acquisitions. I'd like to know what it was a strategy behind that because like, uh, like let's say you're pre $10 million revenue. So was it for buying a team? Was it for a client? Was it for product? So what was the whole like, uh, strategies behind those two acquisitions and what was the value out of them? 
Um, the value for us with the acquisition that we've made was that for a while, buffers in the in the publishing space, like we, we you know we help you publish to social, we help you analyze, we help you be very sort of marketing focused, and we got a lot of feedback from our customers that said like, hey, you know, we really want you to build tool for engagement. We want to reply to tweets and reply on Facebook, and so it's really again very customer driven, right? And so we always said like, okay, we might get around to building that. We want to build that in the future. Kind of like we don't want to spread ourselves too thin. And then when the opportunity came along with Respond, and they were sort of interested in. In, in sort of uh, moving on, and, and we always had this in the back of our minds. We built a simple model. We, we, you, can, you can even Google that. We made some of that transparent. We made a model that said, like, okay, how much would it cost us to build this product versus how much you know, would it cost us if we buy it from right now? And, and, and the numbers worked out, and so we felt like this is a space where we don't want to move into, and we ran the numbers, and we created a model, and uh, we moved ahead with it. So we tried to be as rational as we could instead of like, oh, like, Let's just jump into this. But this was always something on our minds. This is something we've heard a lot from customers. It's very customer driven. As always, a huge thanks to Leo for giving up his time to speak today and incredible learnings in going to 10 million in ARR today. And if you would like to join us at Sasta Annual 2017 this year, then all you have to do is head over to sasta.com and buy your tickets. And when purchasing your tickets, enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY. And when you enter the code, you'll get 20% off the ticket price. And check this out. Tickets to the hottest party San Francisco's seen in years. Oh yes, it's the Sasta Mojito Party. Jason and I would absolutely love to see you there. And if you love today's show, you can follow me on Snapchat at H. Stebbings, and you can follow Jason on Twitter at JasonLK. As always, we so appreciate all your support, and we cannot wait to bring you next week's shows with Jason Lemkin himself. It's a special one.